This morning's scripture passage for our sermon is from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. If we're using one of the Bibles we provided, you can turn to page 874 to find this reading. We'll go ahead and dive in by reading the text. It's a shorter passage this week, so it won't take very long. Listen to God's word from Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man has begun to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here in this part of Luke, Beginning in chapter 9, we've been on this journey with Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem. And we've been watching Jesus' disciples as they travel with him primarily. Uh, And it's been a a literal and metaphorical way that they're walking on. So they're literally walking on the road to Jerusalem and they're learning how to follow Christ, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. As readers of Luke, we get to kind of listen in and see for ourselves what does it mean to follow Christ. What we've been learning about Jesus as we uh, follow him is is the large part the cost of discipleship. And we'll see more about that this morning. But one thing we need to pay attention to is that as we see Jesus going on this journey, there are different audiences that Jesus talks to. So sometimes he talks to disciples, sometimes he's addressing opponents, religious leaders who come to oppose him, and then sometimes we see him addressing crowds, which is what we see him doing this morning. This is important because the, the kind of tenor of what Jesus has to say will change somewhat depending on the group he's addressing. In the passages we've been looking at most recently, he's mainly been addressing opponents. We've seen scribes and Pharisees come and challenge him, or he's been in their context and and seen fit to warn them of the coming judgment. These folks who think that they know the Lord, uh, he's calling them to repent and saying, if you don't know me, you don't really know the Lord. So he's been calling them repeatedly to repent of their pride and self-righteousness and their trust in him alone. But along with those opponents, there's this probably larger group, much larger group, that Jesus addresses much frequently. That's called the crowds. That's what he's going to do in our passage today. He turns to these crowds, great crowds, that accompanied him. So who who were in these crowds? Well, we we might say the the disciples are in the crowds, the the 12 is included here. But but really, those are usually referred to as the disciples. Um, 
among the among the crowd probably is a larger group of people who would have been very uh, committed followers. So in chapter 8, we read of some women who were supporting Jesus' ministry. They seem to be the financial backers. So in addition to the 12, there was some other group of committed disciples. But then there would have been, again, this larger group that we might call interested onlookers. So some of them may have been genuinely interested in, in what Jesus has to say. They're, they're really considering, should I, should I follow this man or not? Uh, there's probably a lot of them that wanted to be healed. They're, they have a, a sickness for themselves, maybe a family member, and they're, they're there to, to get in line when Jesus begins to heal people. And there's probably some there that just want to see the spectacle. They want to see a miraculous sign. They want to see Jesus take their leaders down a peg. They're there just to see something happen. So it's a, it's a diverse group, and they are literally following Jesus. Right? They're walking along the path wherever he goes. They're showing up. But they, the question is, do they know what it really means to follow him? You know, does it, to be a disciple, a follower, does it mean just to, to be there for the spectacle? Does it mean to be there just for some healing that you could get from Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, Jesus turns to them today to, to give them some specific instruction on discipleship. If you're here and you think this is just about coming every so often or getting some healing, I'm going to clarify all of your misconceptions and show you what it means to be my disciple, or the way Jesus puts it, to show you who can't be my disciple. So we're going to look at this today in terms of three renunciations that Jesus calls disciples to make. He calls us to renounce a normal life. First, to renounce a normal life. Second, he calls us to renounce safety and respectability. To renounce safety and respectability. And third, to renounce our trust in possessions. Renounce our trust in possessions. So we see this first call to renounce the normal life in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is focused here on these family relationships, and he uses the word hate here. But he's not using the word hate the way we use hate. So when we, we use hate, we mean to refer to an emotion of extreme hostility or some actions that are meant to harm someone. So you know, we use even this phrase, hate speech, which has kind of become meaningless. But, but we understand that hate, a hateful word is a, a word that's meant to tear someone else down. Right? A hateful action is usually meant to harm someone. Uh, Jesus is not calling us to harm our family and friends or to say hurtful things to them. That's not what he means by hate. When Jesus is talking about hate here, he's, he's using it to talk about our allegiances and loyalties. So instead of giving your primary allegiance to your family, a disciple pledges their allegiance to Christ. In, in that way, they... They prioritize Christ's demands over the obligations of family. A true disciple loves Christ more than he loves his own family, even more than he loves his own life. 
And that's why I think it's helpful for us to think about this in terms of renouncing a normal life. So a normal life in the ancient world was a life built around this extended network of family obligations and privileges. These strong family bonds would have not just been something that provided relational comfort, but this is economic safety and, and strength. You know, you're going to probably take over your dad's business or you know, who you're, which family you married into really was, was mattered a great deal. To have any life at all was to pay careful attention to these family relationships. You had to build your life that way. And Jesus is saying, you need to build your life another way. A disciple's life is built around me. And if you're not ready to build your whole life around me, you can't be my disciple. So we need to translate this a bit into our own culture. So, you know, family relationships are still important to us, but our economic and social situation is much different than the crowds that Jesus spoke to. So we could ask, what, what does it mean to build your life in the 21st century USA? What are the normal ways we build our lives? And it's very tempting for Christians to think, well, we, we just do what we see our friends in the world do. Whatever our colleagues, our classmates are doing, we'll just do that. But we'll you know, set aside Sundays for Jesus, or maybe Sundays and Wednesdays. We'll have the same career goals, the same approach to marriage and family, the same ambitions for our kids. But we'll add in some religion. That'll be good you know, for us. It'll have a helpful effect. But Jesus, I think, would say you can't build your life the same way, the normal way, and be my disciple. I think if we want to get a good mental picture of what Jesus is talking about, we should look at Jesus himself and the way he lived his life. He was a man, after all, who lived a life of obedience to God. We could say even that Jesus left his home to preach the gospel. He, he uh, left his home in, in heaven to preach the gospel, but he also left his home in Nazareth, right? He, he was 30 years old, and he went out, and he was baptized at the River Jordan, and he preached the gospel. He went around Galilee proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. He was committed to this mission above all family commitments. So when his mother and brothers came to see him while his, he was teaching, he responded, looking about and said to those around him, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus was so committed to the mission of God that it redefined how he understood even these most basic relationships. There's some confusion in that there's apparently a, a dance class posted on Facebook, and so we've had more than one couple come and, and look in and realize that there's no dance class happening, so I don't, I'm not sure what happened. I got an interesting phone call from someone trying to rent the building from me, and I think they may have jumped the gun. Um, so that's why you hear, there's some, some stuff in the back. Uh, so J Jesus is telling us here, there's a, there's a fundamental redefinition, and, and I'm exhibit A for it. I've come here and my whole life has been redefined by my obedience to God's will. And so should yours be. And where does this obedience and submission to God's will lead him? Well, we know it leads him all the way to the cross. So Jesus is telling us what true discipleship is like. It's to give your own life also, to hate your own life also. And he's showing us he hated his own life also. He lived this out. He set the pattern. 
Jesus is the true follower of God's will. Of course, he's not only an example to us. He's, he is that, but his act of radical, self-giving love is the power that creates the disciples as well. It, cre- it creates disciples. It makes true discipleship possible. And so this is a good time to clarify that when Jesus is talking about discipleship in this passage, he's not really telling us how to become a disciple. So we don't get saved by, by changing our priorities, by giving extra careful obedience to God. Salvation is not based on anything we do. It's based upon what Jesus has done in this great act of, of radical love. We receive it. We receive what Jesus has done for us by faith. He paid for our sins. We received we received the gift of peace with God and eternal life by faith in him. So Jesus' Jesus's perfect faith and obedience, even to the point of death, is what creates disciples. We enter into discipleship by faith in what he's done. And it's when we understand the radical, transforming love of Christ that radical discipleship most makes sense. So what kind of life of response makes sense when you've come to know that God has given his own life for you? Right? The only life that makes sense would be the life that Jesus has described here. A life built around Jesus. It's a life where every relationship, every priority, every principle is built around the one who saved you. So no one can be a disciple of Jesus who envisions that discipleship as a kind of negotiated life. As if you say, you know, Jesus, I'll be generous with my time and money, but I'm going to reserve the right to use my speech in any way I want. I'm still going to be harsh and manipulative, and that's going to be my thing, but I'll give you this other stuff. That's not on the table for one of Christ's disciples. If Christ has redeemed you with his blood, he's redeemed the whole you, all of you, all that you are. And so we must give our whole lives to him. Now, because of each of us being individuals, we have our own personalities, we have our own sin tendencies, it can be hard to give specifics of what this not normal life looks like. And it's easy to paint with too broad of a brush. I think this is why pastors default to maybe some simplistic um, you know, generalities, like you should all go overseas and be missionaries. That's the way to give your life to Christ. Or you know, if every family just adopts one child, we'll empty out the foster care system. I'm sure you've heard things like that said in churches. And I, I say these things, you know, wanting more Christians to give their lives as missionaries, more, more parents to adopt children, those are good things. But we can't reduce Jesus' call to discipleship to an action item that applies to every Christian. Instead of one blanket action step, it would be better just to describe an, an attitude or a disposition. And so the, the attitude of the disciple is to say to God what Jesus said to God the night before he died. Not as I will, but as you will. He knew that God was calling him to die, and he he prayed that prayer. Not as I will, but you will. The disciple seeks to know God's will and to do it. To conform his whole life 
to it. So what kind of student should I be? How should I use my time and money? What should my work life look like? How should I be married? What kind of spouse should I marry? What kind of values will our family hold most dear? The disciple answers all those questions by simply asking, what does God want? What does his word tell me about those things? And seeks to be conformed to it. Instead of pursuing the normal life, the disciple pursues God's life. Perhaps most important is that when a disciple discerns that there's some disparity, some difference between the life I've been pursuing and what God says, disciples repent. A wholehearted commitment to the will of God means that we repent when we understand we're out of God's will. I think this may be the biggest difference between false followers and true disciples. If the, so if we want to apply a blanket action statement, well, here's the blanket action statement, is repent and believe. Repent of where you're failing to be wholeheartedly devoted. Repent of your idolatries of a normal life. We all must do this. So false followers are tempted to make excuses instead of repent, right? Some fault is exposed and we say, well, well, that's just because, you know, radical discipleship just doesn't work in my culture. Or there's, there's an explanation, there's an excuse for this. You know, I've got, a, I've got an excuse from God why I'm not following him in this way. But when true disciples are made aware of our failure, we repent. We come to the Lord who's called us to give our whole lives and we say, Lord, I haven't. I need your forgiveness. And we trust that he will receive us because he's a gracious God. So the true disciple renounces his right to a normal life, to building his life the way that everyone else around him in the culture is building it, and to build his life on Christ alone. Anyone who won't live that way, Christ says, cannot be his disciple. That's the first renunciation. The second renunciation is to renounce safety and respectability. Jesus says in verse 27, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. True disciples lay down their right to a safe and respectable life. This is not the first time Jesus has called disciples to bear their cross. He, he told them to do this after, he first, uh, after they first confessed that he was the Christ and he revealed that he was going to die and suffer at the hands of religious leaders in chapter 9. And then after that, he calls them to take up their cross and follow him. And so we see the disciples should expect to follow the pattern that Jesus himself sets. But of course, Jesus doesn't call his disciples to suffer in general. He says they must take up their cross. He uses that word cross. I think that's especially important because the cross is a symbol not just of suffering, but it's a symbol of legally sanctioned torture that's meant to humiliate the victim. So the Roman government had many ways they could carry out capital punishment. They, they burned people to death. The, some of them they threw into the arena so for, the, for the beasts to devour. But the form of, of, of a capital punishment that was seen as kind of the worst and that was reserved for slaves and for insurrectionists was crucifixion. And the point of crucifixion was the mocking and public exposure that accompanied it. 
So apparently there's been even found a, um, a third-party vendor that kind of had an advertisement for the kinds of crucifixions they could carry out. And they could choose. You could add some, add some flogging to his crucifixion. Add this or that, you know, that, so that they could make, all, make the public spectacle even worse. Um, and that was, again, that was the point. That the victim of crucifixion should be utterly shamed. They were going to be hung, exposed, and naked for all to see. And so taking up a cross is, is not just general suffering. Taking up a cross means a willingness to be humiliated and killed for the sake of Christ. Disciples must be willing to bear the shame of the cross. And Jesus says, anyone who's unwilling to bear this shame cannot be his disciple. And it's a sobering reality. Can any of us say that we agree to this? A Roman cross is an unlikely fate for most of us 21st century Christians, although you you hear about ISIS crucifying people. Uh, But the shame of the cross does translate across cultures, right? There are cultures that are like ours that are more uh, easy and respectable to be a Christian in and others that are less so. But we even recognize some transition in this in our own culture. So you might think of back, you know, 50 years or or 70 years, it was uh, possible for being a church person, to be a church goer, to allow you to amass a kind of certain social credibility. You know, if you wanted to be a successful real estate agent in the 1950s, you might be one member of a good church to be known as a pillar of the community. He's a moral guy. He's a church goer. Well, that, those days are really gone, right? More, more and more to be publicly Christian is, is to have a liability around your neck, right? Is to have convictions uh, about sexuality that, that make you a bigot in the eyes of society. So we see the ways that it's becoming more shameful in the 21st century to be a Christian in America than it was in the 20th century. And even in our own lifetimes, we've seen pretty big changes there. We also know that the, just the bare conviction that we believe that faith in Christ leads to salvation and all other faiths leads to hell is seen today as intolerant, right? It's an arrogant thing to believe that. And so we should only expect as time goes on for the shame of the cross for us to increase. We certainly know it's, it's like that for many of our neighbors around the world, our brothers and sisters around the world who profess Christ. We should expect that it's going to be harder for Christians to be promoted to high positions in big corporations, to maybe even be elected to public office or have any positions of prominence. We, we've been used to Christians being able to do that, and that's going to be less common. And so we have to ask, are we willing to bear that? Or are we only willing to be a Christian as long as being a Christian helps us to get something else? as long as Christianity is an avenue to a safe and respectable life. Jesus says disciples take up their cross and come after him, even when that path leads to humiliation and death. Are we willing to follow Jesus in that way? Again, the order here is important. We only go where Christ has already gone. He already bore the guilt and shame of our sin on the cross. And we're meant to see, I believe, that that shame was much greater than the shame that we can get from from being a Christian, right? The shame that sin brings is shame before God, 
right? It's to be exposed before God for rebelling against him. That shame has been taken away by Jesus. He bore it in the cross. And so we're meant to see whatever shame that we might bear in following Jesus is relatively trivial by comparison. So we, we may miss the promotion. We may endure awkward conversations. We, we could die on, on the mission field for Christ. But we've been spared the eternal shame of God's displeasure. We're meant to see that the relative disparity is not worthy to be compared. Do you see what Christ has done for you? Are you convinced then that the shame of following Christ is worth it? Jesus gives these too many many parables about counting the cost right after this call to suffer shame and death. And I think that's a notable placement. So the first one in verses 28 through 30 is about building a tower. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Notice how it concludes with mockery, right? The, the one who starts a building project and fails to finish is a laughingstock, right? I'm sure DIYers can relate to this, right? You started the project and there's still a hole in the wall where you didn't finish the project and you feel mocked every time you see it. You know, the hole is mocking me. And in the, the second illustration is, is likewise, and it doesn't mention mockery specifically, but imagine the embarrassment of a king going out thinking he's going to win and then has to sue for peace. And even suing for peace is better than being embarrassed in battle. I believe that Jesus is trying to tell us that it's vastly better to be mocked for following me than for abandoning me. The mockery of the cross that you will experience as a Christian is severe, but temporary. The mockery of hell is infinite and eternal. Which mockery are you living to avoid? Or you might turn things around again and ask, how much value is there in the safety and respectability of the world? What can the world really give you? How long will the world's safety and respectability last? How sure and certain is it? We need to take a careful look at it. I mean, isn't the safety and respectability of the world shaky at best? How quickly do fads come in and out of fashion, right? The friends who think you're cool today will think you're lame tomorrow. Right? Today's celebrity is tomorrow's has-been. Or they might be worse than a has-been. They might be a pariah. They might get canceled for something, right? Compare the safety and respectability the world offers you to the, to the honor bestowed by God and the safety that is found in the gospel. Right? Nothing can touch those blessings God is the same yesterday, today, forever. He doesn't change. And when he promises you something, it's sure and certain. No mockery or torture can separate a disciple from God's love. God is not fickle. 
So which kind of safety are you building your life on? If you intend to be a disciple of Christ, you might ask, in which context is it hard for me to be a Christian? Where am I most tempted to keep my faith to myself? Or you you might ask, do those who are closest to me know that I have joy in Christ? Or if I were to speak out loud about, I'm just happy that I'm saved today, would, would that sound strange to them? For you, for, you, for you to hear those words coming out of your mouth. If we call ourselves disciples of Christ, Christ is calling us to repent of our embarrassment of him. That we should not be ashamed of him. We should be willing to take up our cross. And if we're not willing, we cannot be Christ's disciple. So to follow Christ, we have to forsake the idolatry of a safe and respectable life. And the third renunciation is to renounce trust in our possessions. That's the last condition. Jesus sums up everything he has to say by calling us to renounce all that you have. Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that you have, all that he has, cannot be my disciple. In verse 33. So Jesus' first condition of discipleship was focused on family, to forsake idolatry of family obligations for the sake of following him. He's called us to forsake our safety, and now he's called us to forsake our possessions. It really encompasses all of life. But this call is something that we have to work harder to understand as well. It's not a vow of poverty. Is renouncing all that you have is deeper than that. It's renouncing a trust and a confidence in our own resources. The way of the world is always some way of self-sufficiency, isn't it? It's put your faith in yourself, in your network of relationships, in your own cleverness and skill. And then when you come out ahead, you can take credit for all you've accomplished, right? You can write your business book because you've unlocked the secrets to winning at life. Now, there's a fine line to walk here because there's a a scriptural kind of self-sufficiency. And Paul commands people to work so they can provide for themselves and have something to share with others. In Proverbs, Solomon directs our attention to the industrious ant, right, who who toils. So she's not getting paid, but she's storing things up. And he directs us not to be sluggards, but to go to the ant. So there's a kind of of godly industry and even self-sufficiency But we should note that disciples work industriously by faith. They work industriously knowing that it's God who provides. It's not a faith fundamentally in their own possessions. It's a a confidence in God that leads to work. The false follower, though, is like the rich fool that we read about in the parable of Luke 12. Remember, he put all of his confidence in his great barns of wealth that he was going to build, not knowing that his soul would be required of him. His plan was to live the worry-free life. He's just going to eat and drink and not worry because he had all of his stuff and he had all his barns ready to go. Remember, in that context, Jesus made these two statements. One's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Just think about that. One's life... Your soul doesn't consist in all that you have. 
And then he said, life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. You can't reduce all that you are to just what you eat and what you have. Jesus makes these very clear statements, but it's very tempting for us to believe the opposite. Right, we're tempted to say to Jesus something like, I'll, I'll trust you to meet my spiritual needs, but I'm going to worry about my physical needs. You, know, you handle eternity, I'll handle the money, right? And we do worry about the money, don't we? We worry about what we want and what we don't have. We scheme and plot about how to get it. We can, then we fret and complain about what we've spent or the big expenses coming our way. And Jesus is pointing this out and pointing his disciples to a better way of life. Don't trust in your possessions. Don't believe the lie that your life consists in the abundance of what you have. Instead, see that all that you have is God's. God gave it to you, and it's for him. Lay up treasure for yourself in heaven. It's a call to this better way of life, a better way of, of using stuff, of seeing stuff. But it's a call that comes with a warning, doesn't it? No one can serve two masters. You cannot worship God and money. The call to follow Christ, then, is in this way a call to renounce all that you have. A call to forsake trust in wealth. A call to see that wealth doesn't last into eternity. It will do us no good when our soul is required of us. Again, it's asking us, what are you building your life on? You're going to build it on something. And money and wealth is a tragic foundation for a life. If you build your life on that foundation, when you come to face God, that foundation will crumble beneath you. But when we entrust ourselves to Christ... We have a sure foundation. Though he was rich for our sake, he became poor, that by his poverty we might become rich. We have a wealth that moth and rust cannot touch when we entrust ourselves to him. Jesus concludes his call to discipleship with a strange parable about salt. Salt that loses its saltiness. Which people are happy to point out, this is a physical impossibility, like salt is salt. But I think it's meant to be a ridiculous image in a sense. So Jesus says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, it's a hard metaphor to decipher. We think of salting the earth as making it barren, Although I did look into that a bit, and it seems like salt was used as a fertilizer, and that maybe the reason cities were raised and then salted was to actually help weeds grow over top of them. Um, so there's a bit of a mixed bag on salt's use as a fertilizer. Um, but the point is pretty clear. Saltless salt is useless. Like if you put the salt on your food and it doesn't make it salty, it's, it's to be thrown out, right? If you're trying to use it as fertilizer and it doesn't make the plants grow, it's, it's worthless, and so, likewise, a disciple who does not follow Jesus with their whole life is an oxymoron. There's no partial discipleship. 
There's no such thing as a disciple who's just stopped following Jesus, at least in a permanent sense. Right? So then it makes us wonder, well, is Jesus then a perfectionist? You know, he has impossible standards. One, one failure, one failure of total submission means that you're out. You know, we, and we have to wonder, right? Every Christian, I think, who has an ounce of humility thinks, well, well will I stand up when faced with martyrdom? You know, will, will I, will, do I have any love of money in my heart? And I have to say, yes, yeah, somewhere there is. We all know there's indwelling sin, and so we wonder, am I, am I saltless salt? Well, we should, we should take that seriously, but we should always hear that this call to discipleship comes from a Lord who remembers our frame and knows that we are dust. He's the, he's the same Lord who called to the sinful woman and, and offered her forgiveness. He is still the gracious Savior, even as he calls for radical discipleship. But we should note that Christ's grace never promotes a lax vision of discipleship. Christ's grace never says to us, oh, that sin's okay. Don't, don't worry about repenting of that one. If anything, the complete opposite is true. Like the, the greatness of Christ's grace spurs us on to greater faithfulness, to more careful repentance. We see the love of Christ is perfect, complete, all-sufficient, that he's met our every need. And so our response is meant to be perfect and complete. Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Not to set an impossible standard, but to show us the perfection of our God and the kind of life that we should live in response to him. Our holy and perfect Savior deserves nothing less than our total devotion. And we've sung about this already. Drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away, tis all that I can do. We give ourselves to God because he's given ourselves to us. And so that once again brings us back to repentance. To the extent that we know that impurity has crept in, we repent. We talk about this so much, perhaps it seems boring and passe, but it's not. Like we, we are a people who are committed to repentance, who are committed to reading God's word and applying it. And when there's some issue that arises, we say, I cannot go on and coddle that sin. For me to go on and do that and act as if it's no big deal to talk to my kids that way or, or to cheat this way at work. If I do that, I am denying Jesus and I must repent. So we can be both people who magnify the grace of Christ and who take sin very seriously. I think that's exactly what we see Jesus doing. He magnifies grace. He pleads with these Pharisees in the previous chapters, repent. You've been the fruitless fig tree for the last three years, but I'm giving you another year. Turn and repent. But he says judgment is coming to the house of God. So, where do you need to repent? Are you confessing that thing to God? Are you asking any brothers or sisters for help in repenting of what God is putting his finger on? 
are we the kind of community of disciples where we're helping each other do this? That's who we want to be as a church. One of many things. A community of repenters who are helping each other turn away from sin and know the greatness of Christ's grace. So it should be impossible for us to hear Christ speak to us today without thinking of some ways he's calling us to repent. Where do you need to grow in your complete devotion to Christ? For all of us, this radical call of Christ to follow him with our whole hearts should make us take a hard look at the other things we're tempted to follow. See, the radical call of Christ is built on his perfect love, his perfect salvation. And so the call to renounce everything and follow him implies he's worth following. He can sustain your life. And it should force you to ask, what am I following? What am I building my life on? Is the thing I'm building my life on, will it save me? Let's pray. Father, we ask you to do the work of bringing conviction of sin. Help us to understand clearly what it means to live our lives in devotion to you. To renounce a normal life, a safe life, a life of trust in what we have. And to give ourselves completely to Christ. Give us a great view of Jesus' great grace. So that we will see the great foundation we have that can sustain our faith. Father, I pray you'd grant grace to those here who've yet to come to faith, that they would abandon every false foundation and trust in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.